race and patriarchy have historically subjugated the position of women leaders in South Africa. In order to end all forms of discrimination against women across the world, they need to be incorporated into key political institutions and their participation as leaders in global governance cannot be understated. Today we shine the spotlight on one such a woman, Ambassador Beryl Rose Sisulu. She is the ambassador of South Africa to Greece. Good morning. Welcome to Ubuntu Radio. Ambassador? Good, good morning, Ms. Ngobeni. Thank you so much for making time to join us uh, this morning. So I would first start by wanting to know more about yourself. Please share a brief background about yourself, the person that you are, and what you enjoy doing in life. Uh, thank you and good morning to your listeners. Uh, I'm humbled. Um, briefly about myself, uh, growing up in a township of Soweto uh, with my parents and my siblings, we not only shared our home with family, but our home was always abuzz with visitors and their families, often sleeping over including the security police who were regulars either watching the house from a distance or coming in to search and always disturbing the peace. I was locked up for a night with a group of other young children at the age of 11. We were demonstrating on the steps of the Johannesburg City Hall, holding up placards, asking for our parents to be released from jail. At the time, both my parents were in jail my brothers were in and out of jail. My sister, Lindiwe, at one time spent over a year in solitary confinement. Uh, growing up, we had a very strict mother, but she was also very loving. My mother was banned and placed under house arrest for over 18 years, which meant that she, had, she could not leave the house before 6 a.m. and had to, be, and had to report back home at, by 6 p.m., from Friday 6 a.m. to Monday 6 a.m., she couldn't leave the house. Uh, due to Bantu education, my mother felt that she didn't want us to go to the poor education. She then decided to send us off to boarding school in Swaziland. Uh, shortly after arriving at boarding school, my father was arrested in the Rivonia trial with Mandela and Becky and others. Uh, during the trial, our school, where we were a church school, played a very important role, informing us and updating us of this trial. And we were told that uh, my father and his uh, colleagues were going to be hanged. So every morning we went to church to pray, and then we were informed about what was happening. But anyway, at the end of the, at the day, uh, the world had a big outcry. So they were then released. I mean, not released, sorry. They were then sentenced to life in prison, and they were sent off to Robben Island. When they were sent to Robben Island, a few months later, uh, the school, one of the school teachers approached me and said, I must write to Norway and ask the Norwegians to pay for our school fees. Uh, a few months later, we were told that, yes, the Norwegians were paying our school fees. So several of us uh, children who were at school in Switzerland whose parents were either in jail or house arrested, found ourselves that our fees were paid for by Norwegians. 
that is, yeah, some briefly. I don't know if you want me to say more. <laughs> you can be free to say more, Ambassador. But, you know, I, I picked up when you were uh, speaking about your early childhood that you got locked up for a night at the age of 11. Talk to me about mm-hmm. How did it feel? You were so young. How did you feel? What was going through your mind? Uh, it was very traumatic. Uh, but also remember that, you know, the police were in and out of my home, uh, waking us up in the middle of the night, shining torches in our faces, banging on the windows, banging on the doors, coming with dogs, dogs sniffing us. So it was the life that we grew up in. You know, that was our childhood. That's how we grew up uh, until we went to boarding school. But even in boarding school, things didn't change much until after, uh, you know, uh, apartheid was finished in '94. So we grew up in that apartheid era. Even in high school, we had the same problems when we went home. Uh, we couldn't get passports uh, to travel. Uh, we were not allowed to travel. We used to go through the fences to go to Swaziland to go to school. So that is the life that we, we lived and grew up in, with parents being in and out of jail. At some point, uh, my, both my parents, my brother and my, my nephew, were all locked up at one time. So that is the life that we actually lived, uh, the life we went through. Um, yes, so apartheid hit us very hard. Um. Coming from uh, such a family, your parents are struggle stalwarts, and your uh, brothers, your sisters were all involved. You were all involved. What and all these things? I can imagine they were traumatic. What gave you the strength to go on? What kept you going? Uh, my mother was my inspiration because no matter how hard it was. She always was the driver in the house. She made things happen. She made us go to school. She made sure that we ate. She made sure that everything was there for us. You know, neighbors came, neighbors assisted. So that is um, the person who I I still think of very fondly and uh, know that one has become a set of because one has learned from her how to be assertive, how to to go and be a go-getter and get what you need to get. And that is how we went through our school. Uh, we, we were determined because my mother said, I don't want anybody who doesn't go to school, for example. So you knew that you had to go to school, you knew you had to pass. You knew that for everything uh, there was a reason. But also, in, more importantly, was that My father from prison, uh, whenever he wrote letters, he said, you need to go to school, you need to continue. So as a result, for me, after matric, I went and I did nursing. I didn't like the nursing. And I left the nursing, and I remembered my mother said, I don't want any of you children to become a nurse. So married with three children, I went to university, and I studied law. And when my father was released, he was released on the 15th of October in 1989. And I happened to graduate in 1990, the following, a few months after his release. So it was 
such a wonderful occasion because my parents could be at my graduation uh, in March 1990. Um, so that was a, a, a highlight for me, for my parents being able to be at my graduation and for me having raised myself and gone back to study, uh, married with three children. I can only imagine it It could have been a very uh, um, jovial moment. With your parents or your father being in jail and your mother put under house arrest, did you ever think that this era will end? Did you have hope that one day things will change? You would be able to live your life freely and roam the streets of South Africa fe- freely without fear? We, I, I personally saw hope through the letters my father wrote from prison. Because whenever my father wrote to us, he said, when I come home. So that for me was my hope, that was my inspiration. Is that every other letter that he wrote, he said, when, when, when we come home, when I come home. And he was always interested in the family. So even when we got to the age where we could visit him on Robben Island. Uh, it was one of the things that was a given for me, that uh, they were going to come home. Uh, that is what also inspired me, with that hope and dream that one day they would come home. And of course, it did happen. Mm-hmm. So you indicated to me that you changed from nursing and studied law. Talk me through the early years of, of, of your career as a law graduate, what did you do? I, I, I was an older student, but I enjoyed my time at the University of Natal in Durban. And uh, what went through my mind, uh, which was a, a career that I'd always wanted, and uh, the late husband who had said to me, go back to school, also urged me and said, your father said, go back to school and study what you wanted to do, which was law. I'd never wanted to do nursing in the first place. I just found myself in the nursing career, which was not my ideal choice. And in my years of studying law, I always thought about justice and how one needs to bring about justice. What is the role that I can play to bring about justice? And... Um, I was fortunate because during my, uh, after studying law, I then went to do my articles at the Legal Resources Center, which is a public interest law firm. So I worked uh, with indigent people. It was very touching and trying uh, for me to assist these people, but I, I really felt that at least I was doing my part. I was playing an important role in assisting uh, these indigent people who otherwise would never have had help. Uh, so I really felt that there was some contribution that I was giving back. So how did you end up in diplomacy? Share your journey regarding uh, your work until you became an ambassador. I, I After graduating, I then uh, went to work for the Department of Justice. I became um, the regional head for Justice Gauteng, which meant that I was responsible for all the courts in the province of Gauteng. From there, I went to work uh, at the National Prosecuting Authority. Uh, I was responsible for the corporate services there. 
for all prosecutors in the whole country. And whilst I was at the prosecuting authority, working for the prosecuting authority, I bumped into minister uh, at my, my nephew's funeral. My nephew was a young diplomat who died in, he got malaria and he died uh, very young, uh, my brother's son. And I bumped into the minister and the minister said, uh, you know, I'm actually wanting to change the face of Dorco. Uh, I'm looking for women ambassadors, and um, I would like you uh, to be, become an ambassador. And I said, but I don't know anything about being an ambassador. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, that is how I then heard, she then said, I said, okay, Minister, it's fine. You know, I didn't know what to say to her. So a few months later, I got a call, and I was told that... Um, uh, Norway was available, and uh, the minister had said I, 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 I had agreed to be posted. So when I heard the word Norway, I was excited, actually, because I thought Norway, um, at the age of 12, um, 13, I didn't know where Norway was. I'd written a letter to the Norwegians to ask for fees, and here I'm told to go to Norway as an ambassador. So that is how I... Uh, then agreed uh, when the director general called me and I said, no, it's fine. Tell the minister that I am agreeing to go to, to Norway. And um, that is how I got to Norway because the minister had said, she said, I'm looking for women. I want to change the face of, of the international relations. We need more women, but we need uh, women who we know will do the job. So hopefully I... I was chosen on the basis that, um, you know, the minister thought I would do the job. I went to Norway. And um, luckily for me, in Norway, I actually at some point got to meet uh, the person, the former diplomat, uh, an elderly man by then, who was one of the people who was carrying the money to South Africa uh, to pay for our school fees. Uh, so, yeah, that was very important for me, for Norway. That was one of the highlights for me. It was it was it was really priceless uh, to meet somebody who had been responsible for my education, uh, not just me but uh, many other children. I was fortunate to to have met him. Oh, wow! <coughs> Surely that felt like a moment of 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 gratitude. You had your chance to to say your appreciations to the person, and you felt like. Um, Maybe it's time to pay your dues because these people made it possible for you to go to school. In, indeed. Uh, there actually was a, a, um, a two-page article uh, in one of the Norwegian newspapers at the time, and they said, Payback Time. That was the title of the, <laughs> of the article, even though it was written in Norwegian. Yeah. But when it was translated, it was it told the story that I've just told you. Yes. So yes, it was indeed payback time. Wow, wow, indeed, it was payback time. So as you said that at first you had your doubts, saying to yourself, "I don't even know what ambassadors do." There might be people out there, my listeners, saying, what does an ambassador do?" Talk to me about your day in the office, what is it that you get engaged in? Uh, 
being an ambassador is actually it, it, it's a very it's a very privileged uh, opportunity for one to serve your country. Uh, you have this wonderful opportunity uh, where you can fly your flag high, you can promote your country, you socialize, you meet and interact with people from all over the world, you learn about them, their countries, their cultures. You often have the privilege of meeting very high-level people uh, I have met the King of Norway, I've met the Emperor of Japan, uh, you meet queens, you meet presidents, you know, so it's actually a very privileged life where you are respected also because you are here representing your, your, your country, your president, you are sent by your president. So it is also a role that you must um, uh, uh, respect. Uh, your mind is opened up to the world and the world politics. Uh, you must know your foreign policy well. You must always be up to date with what is happening. So daily, you know, you have different things to do. Uh, other than I always joke and say, they say, what do you do? I say I eat and drink for my country. But other than eating and drinking for my country, you have important meetings. Uh, you... You, you try and negotiate, you, you, you promote your country. I'm also accredited to four other countries. Uh, right now in this uh, quarter, I, I, I am quite busy um, preparing, uh, finishing up my APP uh, for, this, for this quarter. Uh, so we, I also travel to the other countries that I'm accredited to. I'm accredited to Cyprus. I'm the High Commissioner for Cyprus. I'm the Ambassador for Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, and Montenegro. So I do other four other countries besides Athens. So when you are traveling, it can be quite hectic. So you, other than coming to the office, other than going to wherever, whether it's universities, where you meet with um, universities, or you meet with business, or you meet, so you can be quite busy. But of course, um, due to COVID, in the last two and a half years, um, life changed so much. Uh, it was not the normal diplomatic life that one has experienced, which I experienced in Japan, in Australia, and in Norway. Uh, life became so different. Uh, but I think one of the things that we've learned from uh, COVID is that uh, some things can be done online as we are online now. You know, so that is one of the advantages I think that has happened is that um, we've had to sharpen our, 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 our technological skills and some of us, you know. So, um, but I think also as a diplomat, um, sometimes life can be disrupted if you are not with your family. Uh, it can be lonely. Um, you know, you have to keep yourself busy. Uh, there's a lot to do. Uh, there's a lot to do to promote your country. You need to know your country well. Um. Hello. Hi, Ambassador, you're still there. Yes, you're still with us. Yes, you highlighted that you also worked in countries like uh, Japan, Austria, Norway, Greece. Now you are in Greece and you are also accredited to four other countries. 
Um, I would like to find out, like, when you transition from one country to, to another, what could be some of the challenges that you encounter? Um, yes. Uh, what are the challenges? Um, it's very challenging, especially if you uh, go to a country and you don't stay. You know that the term normally would be on paper, you would be told it's a four-year term. Uh, but uh, when I was in Norway, I didn't finish my term as an ambassador because at the time I was seconded to to Durko and I got a new boss at the prosecuting authority who said, uh, you know, you need to come back uh, or you must resign. So I chose to go back to the NPA and um, I didn't finish my term in, in Norway. But... Um, Two, two years later, in 2012, two years later, I was then asked to go to Japan. And, uh, of course, I thought between the NPA and Japan, uh, it's, it's a hard choice to make, but I, I, I chose the, the, the one I thought was, you know, um, better, which was Japan. I went to Japan. Unfortunately, in Japan, I stayed for one year. I was called and told no you now have to go to Australia. So I then went to Australia for two years. And um, whilst I was in Australia, I was then told to come to Greece. So I've actually been a, a, a roving ambassador. I have not finished any term so far. This will be the first time that I actually finish my, my four years, which is what, the paper, what it says on paper. But um, I don't regret. It's been a wonderful experience. Uh, in the short time that I've been to so many countries. Uh, the difficulty is that, you know, you get to a country, you decide, I'm here for four years, this is what I'm going to do. You get into commitments, you get into that. Um, you know, so you do also have this problem with your own family commitments that you've made. Uh, it's also the culture shock because these are totally different countries. Uh, languages are different, except for Australia, which was English. Uh, language is a very big barrier for us in, in countries where the, 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 the dominant language is the language of the country, like Greece, like Japan. So language is also a barrier, and I think this also makes it difficult for, for people with, uh, with children, uh, young, uh, young, young children especially, but, uh, or even older children. So those are some of the challenges uh, that we face. Um, uh, talking about culture shock, let's talk about Greece specifically. How is the country like? How is its people? How is the culture of the people of uh, Greece? Um, recently, the foreign minister, I think on the 24th of January, uh, went to visit our minister Pando. And uh, I laughed when I listened to the video and Minister Panda was saying that um, Greece must be on your bucket list. So, yes, Greece is a beautiful country. It's made up of many islands, very friendly people. And as you probably know, we have a very big uh, Greek diaspora. I think there were about 60,000 Greeks in South Africa. There used to be much more. Uh, so we are used to Greeks in South Africa and Strange enough, the lifestyle of Greeks is very similar to our African lifestyle. They are free people, they are easy people, they are friendly. They have uh, what I can say, Ubuntu. 
they like food, they like eating, they like dance, they like singing. You know, so for me, I feel at home in Greece. I think I find that there are a lot of similarities uh, with South Africa, with Africa, with African culture, and uh, I think that's um, how I can describe um, the Greeks. Um, I agree with Minister that Greece should be on any South Africans' bucket list. I've seen a lot of South Africans traveling to Greece. Let's talk about tourism in terms of uh, um, people coming to Greece and uh, Greeks coming to South Africa. How would you put them on the scale and what are some of the attractions that people can consider when they come to Greece? Um. Greece was closed for tourism for the last two and a half years because of the COVID. They opened up for tourism now, and uh, Greece shows off its beautiful scenic routes, its islands. It has many, many islands, and you have to come to Greece. You have to come to the islands in order to see Greece. But Greece, as you know itself, is a very historic country. It has um, very, very important um, uh, buildings, it has, um, you know, that one would want to see for, for people who've done history. It's a very important historical country. It's old um, civilization, as they say, started here, and they also tell you that, um, you know, you can't say you can't speak Greek because a lot of words come from, from, from Greek, uh, which is true. So it is really a beautiful country to visit. Um, there's a lot to see. Um, yes, people love coming to Greece, and I think the food is wonderful too for people who like uh, different cultures and different tastes. Music and dance, they love, as I say, it's very familiar to us as Africans. It sounds very interesting. I surely must visit Greece because the only thing I know now is Greek salad. <laughs> <laughs> There's much more than Greek salad. Okay. I'll surely make time to visit Greece. So as you are about to end your term, your four-year term there in Greece, what are some of the significant projects that you are currently working on? I can speak about some of the projects that I've done and uh, other things that I'm, 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 going, I'm, I'm going to be doing. But uh, exciting that I've done is uh, I was instrumental in, in the naming of uh, one of the streets in, 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 a, in, in, a, in a town called Kavala in Greece. The, the, the street has been named Nelson Mandela Street. So we have a Nelson Mandela Street in Greece, and um, we were able to do it with the mayor of the town and with the Mandela Foundation who gave us the permission. So I participated uh, in that event, and of course, as we all know, the world still respects Mandela very highly. And Madiba, as I said earlier on, spent many years um, uh, in my home with my parents. His first wife was my aunt, but also that him and my father uh, spent uh, 26 years in prison. Most of, the, of at that time was in Robben Island. And then another event um, was participating in the naming of the George Bezos Square. 
last year where uh, the square was named George Bezos and the, his, his bust was erected in, um, in the Peloponnese, which is where George Bezos came from. I don't know if you know much about George Bezos' history, besides being uh, the lawyer for Mandela and my father and my brothers and etc. But Mandela, uh, George Bezos, sorry, came to South Africa, I think, as a young boy of about 12, 13. They were running away from the war in Greece at the time. So he literally grew up in, in South Africa, uh, but he was a Greek, a well-known Greek, a highly respected Greek. Greek. I also happened to have personally known, known him. We called him Uncle George, because whenever the, somebody was arrested, we knew we had to phone Uncle George. So I felt very proud uh, participating in these um, two events. Uh, what we are working on currently, we are busy with before, I've just come back from Montenegro, having had several meetings there, as Montenegro is one of the countries that I'm accredited to. On Monday, I will be traveling to Serbia, which is the other country. We have some meetings lined up there um, with um, foreign ministry and other government uh, ministries. And then next month, we will be traveling to Cyprus for meetings in Cyprus. And then I also belong to a very active women's group. When I arrived here, uh, we were nine women, and we decided we wanted to start a women's group, but also it was COVID, so we couldn't meet you know, in numbers. But it was easy for us to meet as a group of nine. But then the group has since grown, and uh, we are now 23. And uh, these are very active women. We sort of meet on a monthly basis. We invite speakers to have lunch. And uh, we had lunch with the president of Greece. She's a woman. We've had lunch with the prime minister of Greece. And we interact with them. We are able to speak with them. And, you know, um, it, it, it's much easier as a group of, of 20 women speaking uh, to these guests. Um, in March, on the, on, on the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day, it's my turn to host uh, a lunch, and uh, we have invited three women parliamentarians. Uh, we've chosen the younger women parliamentarians because we want to hear from them, you know, how they find parliament, what they do, and, uh, you know, all about Greece, whatever they'll tell us. So I'll be hosting them on the on the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day. The following month, we will be hosting the, the foreign minister. We, will, we, will, we have invited him for lunch. So we, we have a very active uh, group. And uh, this group, for the past two years, has also participated in the campaign on the 25th of November called Oranging the World. You know, the, the campaign that says we must unite to end violence against women. So we have actively, for the last two years, been giving our personal messages on, uh, on we want our voices to be heard, uh, condemning violence against women. So that is also one of the things that this group started, and that is what we have done. Um, other than that, we also have, as you know, it's Q4. We are trying to wrap up whatever we haven't done in our APP, and we will also be planning, as you know, yesterday we had set plan in the morning, part set plan with the head of us, 
So we will be doing our own step plan, preparing for our new APP. So it's quite a busy quarter, as you know. It's also year end. So yes, we are on our toes this quarter. Mm-hmm. In your personal view, do you think we are doing enough as a country to empower women? If I can answer you directly, I'll say no. But uh, having said no, um, we know that South Africa has a wonderful constitution with the Bill of Rights. Women are therefore obviously protected by the full range of rights as guaranteed by our constitution. However, we know that it's not that simple. Yes, we have made strides in some areas. I know, for example, that uh, in Parliament we have about 46% women. Uh, but remember that women make up about 51.2% of the South African population. So women are in the majority. Um, yes, we've done well in that particular area, but we must also know that we are actually number nine on the list. Uh, Rwanda is number one, with 60% women in parliament, followed by Cuba, which has 50% women. So, yes, there's definitely room for improvement there. Uh, we, I do know that the public service is made up of about 62% women. However, if you look at where those women are, those women are in the lower, lower ranks. Um, you know, so we need to work on bringing those women up into higher ranks. Uh, for example, we know that when it comes to CEOs, if you look at the top 100 CEOs in, in, in South Africa, only seven are women. So there too there's room for improvement. Um, we know that we need to do much more. Uh, we know that economic, social, and political empowerment are critical for us to achieve gender equality. And according to a general household survey in 2021, we know that more than 42% of households are headed by females. So that is one aspect that we don't really look at uh, when we think of, of women and empowering women, is that a lot of those women are actually heading households. Why do you think it is important for women to participate in global governance, uh, for example, as ministers of international relations, as ambassadors, as foreign service officials or members? Well, of we know that internationally South Africa has been promoting women mm. onto the international stage. And here I can think of women like Pumzile Mlambonyoga. I can think of Kosozana um, Zuma, Geraldine Fraser. Ayanda Lodo, who is just recently gone. You know, these are women who are able and capably representing us internationally. It is important for women to head these international institutions. And we know that this is in line with the principles of equality and non-discrimination. But we also know that we have extra qualities as women. We know that women are life givers. They are natural providers, they are caregivers, mediators, peace brokers. These are natural roles and they are compatible with leadership requirements in the fields of humanitarian action, peacemaking, peace building, and post-war reconstruction and development. So women actually can play a very, very important role internationally and um, within the country. 
What message would you like to pass to women, young women who want to pursue a career in diplomacy? Well, we know that diplomacy is a vocation that applies in many brands, and it is wider than Berko provides. You can be an ambassador of social interest, you can be an ambassador of a good cause. The world is open. You can exert yourself as an ambassador in your own right. Uh, you can be exemplary in your community or in the world. But for DERCO, it is a profession. You study, you undergo training. And however, this is not strictly political science only. There are different areas of diplomacy. As we know, we have um, diplomats from agriculture, diplomats from other departments. Uh, we know that a career diplomat needs a qualification. Uh, but what I think a diplomat should really make sure is that you know your country, because you have to sell your country. You have to actually um, entice people to visit your country. And more importantly, you need to know your foreign policies. You must know every element of your trade. You need to know the history of your country. You need to know why decisions are made. You must be able to speak on the position of your country. You must be committed to promoting South Africa's national interests and values. And you should not become an embarrassment to yourself, your family, or your country. You also need to know the vision and the mission of DERCO, and you need to know what your country stands for and the mission and vision of your country. When you leave uh, Greece at the end of your tenure, what kind of legacy would you leave behind and what lessons will you be taking home? Mm. Uh, legacy? I'd like to believe that I've left some trail amongst some of those that I've been working with, uh, that I've been mentoring and coaching some of the younger diplomats I've worked with. Uh, I have tried to live through the values of Ubuntu, and that is how I think I have guided my career. I've been honest, or I am honest and loyal to my government and my country. I always try to articulate the vision and mission of DERCO and previously of other departments where I've been. That, I think, would be uh, the legacy that I think uh, I'd hope I have left behind. Well, thank you so much for making time to speak to us this morning. We wish you all the best. And, uh, yeah, may God be with you in everything that you do. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the day. Bye. Bye. That's Ambassador Beryl Rose Sisulu, the ambassador of South Africa to Greece, speaking to us about being a woman in diplomacy. She shared with us her experience uh, growing up uh, as a child of struggle stalwarts and getting an education and feathering herself up to when she became an ambassador. She is now based in Greece and she has also taken assignments in uh, 
countries like Norway, Japan, Australia, and now she's also accredited to four other countries. Thank you so much for tuning in. You are listening to The Diplomat on Ubuntu Radio. I am Ethel Mangobeni, and I will be with you until 12 midday Central African time. Let's take a short commercial break.